last song and that don't get you fired up, then something's wrong with you. I don't, something is wrong with you. And I guess the last song a lot more than that, but both of them. Let me ask you all a question. Um, anybody, if you've, if you've ever, if life's ever beat you up at all, raise your hand a little bit. So the rest of you are lying through your teeth because it's going to happen. We're going to get, <clears throat> we're going to get emotionally beat up. We're going to get mentally beat up, you know, we may go to work and get beat up by our boss, you know, our mama might beat us up, our daddy might, I don't know, it's going to happen, and, and some of them are physical, and I want to share with you this morning first, I guess, um, a, a valuable lesson that I learned from one of the physically, that kind of puts it lightly, one of the physically painful hard knocks in my life. Um, I remember spring Football practice, 1984, 1985, I want to say it was the spring of 85. Concussions will make you forget stuff sometimes, but it was the spring, I think, of 1985, and uh, I was a defensive back, and, you know, in, in football, is that, throw that picture up there, if you would. Um, on the defense, you got the defensive line, you got the linebackers, you got the secondary, the defensive backs, and I was a cornerback. And uh, this guy that's on the screen, number 30, his name is Keith Henderson. Probably y'all, none of y'all have ever heard of Keith Henderson, but he was about 6'2", 228. He ended up, this was 1980, I think he got drafted in the 86 draft by the San Francisco 49ers in the third round. And we were scrimmaging the first team offense. I was a scout team player. I went on scholarship. I walked on. And uh, we were scrimmaging the first team offense. Keith was in the backfield. And I was five foot nothing and a hundred and nothing. Um, at the time, literally, I was about 175 pounds. <clears throat> and so we're scrimmaging the first team offense, and we were told if a scholarship player uh, was to, a running back, was to break through the line of scrimmage, break through the uh, linebackers, and get into the secondary, we, the defensive backs, particularly the ones that were not scholarship players, were to just hit them and stand them up. We weren't to tackle them because their knees were worth more than our knees were. And so we were just supposed to hit him and stand him up. So two or three plays into that scrimmage, Keith breaks through the line, and so he's got me by, uh, I ain't real good in math, third, about 50, 60 pounds. So I go to just stand him up. He went through the linebackers. I went to stand him up. Well, he had other thoughts in his mind, and I've never been trucked over, run over like that in my life, but I wasn't going to tackle him. I was just kind of lightly going to stand him up. Well, he ran me over, stepped on my chest, broke my shoulder pads, and it takes something to break shoulder pads. <clears throat> well, we call this an ear hole because, and any of you that have played football, you know what I'm talking about. When I was laying, we also call it a snot bubbler, but that's probably not supposed to say that in church. But I was laying on the ground, and when he hit me, or when he ran me over, the helmet came down hard, broke my nose ripped the hole across the base of my nose and I had blood all over my face and the helmet turned like that and I was looking through the ear hole and so we call that's why we call it an ear hole if you've ever played football and you've ever looked through the ear hole then you know that you got busted and so <clears throat> I knew then that to learn about resiliency and to learn about to figure out how to bounce back I'd have to figure out a way to straighten the helmet out and get back up and go do what you got to do. And so this movie, Rudy, it reminded me so much. I've watched it 5,000 times. 
because Rudy was five foot nothing and a hundred and nothing, and so I, I mean I I can relate I could relate so to that movie. Rudy had a dream uh, that nothing was going to get in the way of his dream of playing football at Notre Dame, going to college first, I guess, and playing football at Notre Dame, and all of his life. His mama and daddy and his brothers and sisters and everybody that he knew, they kept telling him, you can't do it, you can't do it, you can't do it. You're too slow, you're too small, you're, too, you're, you're, you're not smart enough. Pick something, and that's all they screamed at him all the time. When he graduated from high school, Rudy went, to, uh, went in the Navy for two years. He went to Joliet uh, Catholic High School in Joliet, Illinois. <clears throat> um, and then he went, uh, went in the Navy for two years, and then he uh, worked at a power plant, or a, I think a power plant in Indiana. But his dream of going to Notre Dame never died. He knew after being at his school for four years, he kind of knew that out of high school four years, he knew that it was, kinda, it was a now or never make it break a moment. And his parents the whole time keep telling him, you can't do it, you can't do it, you're too small, you're too slow, you're too stupid, whatever it is. All of us have been told things like that. To some degree or the other, we have been told one of those kinds of things. And so he said, you know what, I really don't care what y'all say, I'm gone. He gets on a bus and he heads to Notre Dame. He gets to Notre Dame, and now they told him, you know, your grades aren't good enough to get in. But they said, if you go across the street to Holy Cross, uh, which is another school in, uh, in uh, Indiana, go across the street to Holy Cross, go to school, get your grades up, you can apply to Notre Dame. Well, he does that. He goes to Holy Cross, and every semester he applies to Notre Dame. And every semester they reject him. And you saw in that trailer a minute ago, when he was standing in that hallway, widening up that piece of paper, threw it against the wall, that was a rejection letter that he was widening up and throwing against the wall. <clears throat> and so, but his dream never died. At the end of his sophomore year, after being rejected uh, five or six quarters in a row, um, finally, at the end, is the last moment that he could have got in Notre Dame, uh, he got in. And so he said, I'm going to play football. Well, you, you know, it's not like they were screaming and yelling for him to come on and play football for, you know, University of Notre Dame. But he went to the tryout. And it was 40 or 50 guys that tried out. Rudy was the one person that made it. And he made it because of grit. And he made it because of his heart. And he made it because he responded in the right way to the adversity that was sort of thrown his way. And at five foot seven, 170 pounds, he ain't that big, but that heart, you know, that heart was huge. Spent the next two years at Notre Dame getting beat down practice after practice after practice, and you saw some of the collisions. You know, people say football is a contact sport. Football is a collision sport. And there were crazy collisions, and I, I remember those days. So there was probably many, many, many times that Rudy was looking through the ear hole. There was probably many, many times that Rudy woke up in the morning and could hardly get out of the bed. I, I promise you that is the way it was. Now, his teammates kind of rallied around him at the, you know, he played his junior year at Notre Dame, never saw the field. Played his senior year at Notre Dame, never saw the field. Um, but it's, it's, they were coming down to the last home game, and they were playing Georgia Tech. Uh, and oddly enough, Georgia Tech's quarterback, is, his name is Rudy Allen, who is from Columbus, lives in Columbus. He's actually a pastor in Columbus right now. But that was Tech's quarterback at the time. So you come uh, in the 75 season, that's the last home game. His teammates are rallying around him trying to get the coach to let him dress for that game. And it's tough in, in a Division I school because you've got 90 scholarship athletes and only 60 kids get to, get to dress out for a football game. And so they're not going to dress one of us scrubs and have a scholarship athlete sitting in the stands. But he ended up doing it, and, and so Rudy dressed for this game. So fast forward to about to the fourth quarter in this game, and uh, Notre Dame scores a touchdown. 
puts them comfortably ahead in the game. They put Rudy in. The place goes berserk. All his teammates are going nuts. Rudy got in, Rudy got in. They kick off. Tech runs the ball back to about the 25-yard line. There's 25, 30 seconds left in the game. Coach Yantos is screaming for Rudy because Rudy said, what am I supposed to do? He stay in, stay in, stay in. And so Rudy goes and he gets on the left side defensive line as a defensive end, which is comical because he's 80, 90 pounds too light to be a defensive end. But it's the last play of the game, just stay in there. <clears throat> and so Rudy Allen from Columbus gets the ball because he's a Tech's quarterback, rolls out, and somehow Rudy slithered through the line and sacked Rudy Allen on the other side of the, of the field, sacked him. That's the way the game ended. And all uh, the place really literally went crazy. All of Notre Dame's players run out on the field, carry Rudy off on his shoulders, and nobody has ever been carried off that field since that day in 1975 unless they were on a stretcher. But he was up, <laughs> he was up on their shoulders. He graduated the next year, and five of his brothers graduated from college. Nobody in their family had ever gone to college. Rudy broke that little cycle. And it's funny, before the first service, Ben Faust, who was playing guitar over here, said that he coached wrestling. You were a wrestling coach for his brother, right? Yeah, he, he coached one of Rudy's brothers wrestling where? Oh, in Joliet, Illinois. Uh, so it's neat. There's these little connections to all of this in Columbus. Um, so I want to wrap this back around to the Bible. And, and <clears throat> excuse me. I want to look at... at a guy, and there's nobody else that has crossed the pages of the Old Testament that has received the ear holes, the getting beat up, the knocks in the head. No one in the Old Testament like uh, the guy I want to talk to today, one of my heroes of the faith, Joseph. And his story comes from the first book in your Bible on the left side in the Old Testament, Genesis is the book. And jo- Joseph is the great-grandson of Abraham. It's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And so I want to talk about Joseph. Joseph was one of Jacob's 12 sons. Twelve sons became ultimately the twelve tribes of Israel. We're going to dig a little deep into the, this story in the Scripture today. Um, so let's, let's look at him. Ear, and this is going to be the ear hole moment for Joseph, number one. He is hated, envied, um, conspired against, and beat up, but not by his people's enemies, not by the Ishmaelites or the Amalekites or the Bubla Bublaites, whatever kind of ites... It's not those people. It's, uh, it's his brothers. Um, he's got 11 brothers. And when he was 17, uh, he was out tending to the flock with 10 of his 11 brothers. This is a soap opera kind of thing, too, because these 10 brothers were really 10 half-brothers with three different mamas, and Benjamin, the other brother, and Joseph had the same mama, Rachel. So there's a lot of that stuff going on. So he's at a lot. I probably shouldn't say that that way either. But... Um, Joseph is out there with those 10, ten of the 11, uh, and he's checking on them. And he comes back and he tells his dad, Jacob, that uh, he gives them a bad report. He tattletales on whatever they're doing. The text doesn't tell you what the report was, what the content was, but it just says that it was a bad report. So he tattletailed on his brothers. And <clears throat> um, what the text does tell us, though, multiple times, is that Jacob loved Joseph more than the other brothers. Jacob showed favoritism to Joseph over the other brothers. And so how do you think that made his brothers feel? They began to get ticked. Um, They began to be envious of him. And in Genesis 37 chapter, uh, excuse me, verse 3 and 4, says, now Israel and Israel, the Lord renamed Jacob Israel. So here he says, now Israel, he's really talking about Jacob. 
Um, now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and couldn't speak peacefully to him. So verse 4 says they hated him. Imagine that. You know, snitch, tattletale, punk, daddy's little brat, baby boy. Pick all those things. They knew their daddy loved him, loved Joseph more than they loved him. And they got, they got to the point where they wouldn't even talk to him. It's going to get worse, but at that point it got, uh, it got where they wouldn't even talk to him. And Joseph, and this is what I'm fixing to tell you, is not going to help things. Joseph was a, was a dreamer, and, uh, and he told his brothers about a dream that he had one night. And he says to his brothers, now think about this. Just, they're sitting around on the back of their pickup trucks talking. And, and, and Joseph says, I got a dream, and I want to tell you all about my dream. And he says, I dreamed that we were out, all of us were out in the field collecting bundles of wheat. And my bundle of wheat uh, is wrapped up and it's standing straight up. And y'all get y'all's bundles of wheat and y'all's bundles circle around my bundle and start bowing down to it. Now, what you reckon the brothers thought about that? They said, I mean, think about it. They said, so we are going to bow down to you and we are going to, you're going to boss us around. They said that, you know, that, that ain't going to happen in, the, in verse 8, a little further, a little while later in, in chapter 37, in verse 8, it said, they, so they hated him even more because of his dream and, and his words. And so you've got to figure, they're constantly picketed him, they're constantly messing with him, um, they were jealous, clearly, of, of Pop's favoritism over him, <clears throat> and the day came again where they were way out in the county somewhere tending to their flock, and Jacob sent Joseph out there again. So this time, they see his brothers. They see Jacob coming off in the distance, and so they had love in their hearts, you reckon? No. They see him coming off in the distance, and they say, or they conspire to kill him, and they're going to throw him in a pit when he gets there. And our problem is not that we may get knocked down. You know, you can take it to the bank. The knockdown is coming. It's not an if. There's too many places in Scripture that, do, that doesn't say if something should happen to you, then do this. It says when. And so it's not a question of this, if. It's a question of what do we do when that moment in life comes along? How do we react? And Joseph is a pretty good example of that for us. So uh, there really isn't any, any mention, I guess. There really isn't any mention in the Scripture of how Joseph, did he, did he start screaming and yelling at him? Did he physically do something? There's no mention of that. You know, when we find ourselves in these situations, you know, our natural response might be to flip out violently or our, our natural response may be to somehow sort of wither up and, and crumble and fall apart. And so to respond correctly, we need to be on our knees seeking guidance from the Lord. We need to, uh, we need to turn to the one that came to be beaten ear hold and hung up on a cross for us. That's where we need to turn. Sometimes we turn to booze. Sometimes we turn to drugs. Uh, there any number of different things that we turn to, but we need to be turning to the one who came for us to turn to. I, look, I remember in January 2002, so that's 13 years ago, when I, I told my family uh, that I had come to believe every word from page one to the end, every word in this Bible, that I'd come to believe that it was completely inerrant, that I had come to accept Jesus Christ as the leader and forgiver of my life, 
that I that I you know uh, that I'd come to believe that he paid the price that I was a sinner and that he paid this is not a complicated gospel that he paid the price uh, for my sin on that cross that I'd come to believe that and my family is uh, I grew up Jewish and all of my family except one of my brother's daughters and his son who in the last three or four years have come to know the Lord everybody else is Jewish very Jewish so I'm, when I'm one of the things that uh, that my sister who lived in Virginia at the time older sister. Um, one of the things that she said to me, she didn't say, one of the things she screamed at me on the phone when I told them that night was that that, y'all listen to this, she said that Jesus stuff is just a crutch for weak-minded people. That Jesus stuff is just a crutch for weak-minded people. And so I had to back up. My initial, my gut was to start hollering, but I wasn't going to do that. And I thought, okay, I had to sit there and I thought about it and I said, I'm kind of okay with that. You know, I can't think of a better crutch, uh, a more worthy crutch, a stronger crutch, a safer crutch. You know, uh, I can't think of a better crutch to help pick my sorry little tail up off the field and turn the helmet straight again. And so I thought, I can live with that. I'm okay with that. She, had no, she did not understand that one bit when I said, well, okay, okay. Um, Jesus has, it, the shoulders are big and broad enough for us to cry on. They're big and broad enough for us to lean on. So that's where we need to be leaning. So here we are, let's get back to Joseph. <clears throat> Earhole moment number two finds Joseph in the pit. And this is in Gen- this is Genesis 37, verse 24. And they took him. And they threw him into a pit, and the pit was empty, and there was no water in it. So they saw him coming in the distance. They conspired to kill him. But one of his brothers, Reuben, I told you all we were going to get in the weeds of this story. This is about ten chapters in Genesis. Um, One of his brothers, Reuben, came to his senses a bit and said, you know, we're not going to kill him, but we are going to rip this coat of many colors that his dad had made for him. We're going to rip that off of him, and we are going to throw him in a pit. And, uh, and they, they were going to leave him for dead, and they were going to tell Pops that, uh, that wild animals had got him or something. Um, and a short while later, Judah, who's one of the other brothers, Judah said, no, 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 guys, let's not throw him in the pit. Let's pull him out of the pit, and let's sell him off to the slave traders. That's what they did. They sold, him, they sold Joseph off to the slave traders who took him to Egypt. And despite his brother's disobedience, and dis- despite any of that goings on, God is still on the throne, and God is still in charge. God is still, no matter what we've got going on, God is still on that throne, and God is still in charge. So as Joseph was, was in the pit, what do you reckon was going through his mind? I want to give you three things that, that I think can, people may react this way. Um, the first thing is that people, you, me, I don't know, may say, may scream out that God has forsaken me. He's turned his back on me. He's abandoned me. He doesn't love me anymore. All of us maybe at some time or the other have said one of those things. And number two is, is you may say, is this what happens to uh, people when they serve and obey the Lord? You know, I'm obedient. I act right. I do what I'm supposed to do. Um, is this how you repay me? Like it's some, some tit-for-tat credit debit thing like I do this and therefore God loves me. It's absurd. It makes sort of sense to us because grace makes no sense to us because we don't deserve it. 
And so we're trying to make this, uh, I can act this way, and if I act this way, life should be a bed of roses. The problem is that ain't what that Bible says. Number three, we may scream and cry out, um, why me, Lord? You know, why me? I haven't done anything to deserve this. You need to put this junk on somebody else that deserves it because I don't. You know, why me, Lord? I can't imagine that everybody in this room has not at some point or the other, if you didn't scream, cry it out, you, you thought one of these things that's up there. And I think we look at Joseph and we can see his true character in the way that he responds. He said, God has not forsaken me. He is with me. I'm going to continue to obey him and be faithful to him despite the circumstances that I'm in. And that's where it's hard for us because we cannot let our circumstances dictate our faith. We cannot. We cannot. We cannot. Does God let the circumstances dictate his faith to us, his faithfulness to us? Does he let the circumstances dictate whether he loves you or not? He, no. And we cannot do that. And Joseph must have somehow realized that all this junk that's getting thrown at him, these trials, these tribulations, the, the ear hole moments and all that stuff, he, he must have come to some realization that maybe those are God's opportunities for revealing his power and his mercy and his grace and his sovereignty. <clears throat> do, do you think that if somebody prays for patience, that God just, the lightning bolt snaps some patience on him? He, yes, he could do that because he can do whatever he wants to do because he's God and we're not. But consider for a moment that maybe God gives them the opportunity to be patient. If somebody is... Uh, crying out to God for courage. Do you think that God just a lightning bolt hits them and they got courage? He could do that because he's God and we're not and he can do whatever he wants to do. But consider that maybe he orchestrates something to allow them the opportunity to develop courage. That is just a perspective thing. Um, In Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 3, I want you to look at this, this passage. We can rejoice, too, when we run into problems and trials. And I want you to look at the one, two, three, four. Look at the fifth word. What's the fifth word? Y'all say the fifth word. That was weak. It don't say if. It says when. So we can rejoice, too, when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance, perseverance, um, stick-to-itiveness, all of whatever it means to, to stay engaged. Um, so know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. And then he goes on in Romans 8, 28, and he says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. We're going to try this one more time. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. What's the 10th word? I hope I counted right. What's the 10th word? All. All. For those that love the Lord, oh, nobody can count. All things work for the good. Does that say some things work for the good? Does that say for those that love the Lord, every other thing is going to work together for good? No, it does not. And I don't understand how he does it. I'm not God. Somehow or the other, he sinks and he shapes and he twists and he does stuff and he makes everything work out uh, for the good. 
Um, And then he goes on three verses later. Powerful, powerful verse uh, in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? And here's what we say to these things. Here's what I tell those things. Here's what I'm looking through the ear hole, and this is what I tell those things. If God is for me, who can be against me? If God is for us, who can be against us? It doesn't matter the things. It don't matter what the things are. Because if God is for me, if God's got my back, then it, it makes no difference what those things are. And the things themselves, the junk, the, the garbage that gets thrown on top of you, the stuff that happens to your mama or your daddy or your son or your daughter, it, it really, they can be brutal. And I'm not denying the brutality of what they can be. In fact, they may be the worst thing that you have ever experienced. But somehow or the other, God syncs them together somehow to accomplish His plan. And His plan is always good. Well, why is His plan always good? Because He is good, and He is holy, and He is righteous, and He is just, and it's just, it is just who He is. And His goal is to bring you and I into perfection in His presence. In your pain, He is, he is holding your hand. In, in, in your pain, when you are in the weeds of the nastiness, He's got His arm around you. You've you got to just understand that. Corey Ten Boom. Anybody ever heard of Corey Ten Boom? She's a writer. She was something before she was a writer. I'm going to tell you what she was. She, along with her family, uh, helped hundreds and hundreds of people escape the Holocaust during World War II. And she was arrested in 1944 um, and thrown into Ravensbrück concentration camp for what she did. And uh, ultimately, the next year when the camps were liberated, she got out. But she was a Dutch Christian. She was not Jewish. And her family wasn't Jewish. Um, but she wrote a book called The Hiding Place. It's a fantastic book. Um, but she wrote a book called The Hiding Place. And there's a quote in The Hiding Place. And the quote says, There is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. That's, you should have, this should have been in your seat when you sat down. So hopefully it was in every seat. Here's what I want you to get from that. First, I want you to, don't do this now, but after we're done, put it in your wallet, put it in your purse, put it in your pocket, tape it to your dashboard, tape it to your forehead, I don't know, do something, keep it. And when, when, not if, when something gets thrown on you, just, just pull it out of your wallet and just look at that, because here's the deal, Here, here's the deal. It don't matter how deep the pit is, this is what God tells us, the, the pit can be this deep. You can be stuck about right there, and God can get right there and pick you up. And you can get right there, and God can get a little deeper and pick you up right there. You've got to understand, it don't matter how deep the pit is, God's a little deeper than that. And so I want you all to hold on to those things, to that little card. <coughs> Excuse me. So back to Joseph. God doesn't leave Joseph in that pit. Uh, Joseph has still got a snot bubbler or two ahead of him. So... Snot bubble, I like saying that. I shouldn't like saying that. Snot bubble number three finds Joseph in, in ear hole number three, finds Joseph in Egypt. Upon arriving there, he sl- he's sold into slavery to a guy named Potiphar. Potiphar was uh, the captain of the guard. Potiphar was one of the Pharaoh's, uh, one of the Pharaoh's right-hand guys. And as a slave, Joseph was faithful to God, and God blessed him. And Genesis 39 says... The Lord was, uh, was with Joseph, and Joseph became a successful man. Potiphar put him in charge uh, of his entire household, and while he was in charge of his household, uh, Potiphar's wife cast her eyes upon him, and she cast her eyes upon him over and over and over. 
And as she was casting her eyes upon him, Joseph said no every single time that she cast her eyes upon him until the umpteenth time she accused him of seducing her and had him thrown into prison. So here, here is Joseph who's doing the right thing. Everything he's doing, he's doing the right thing, and he finds himself in prison. Um, and so... Uh, Finally, after two, year, two more years in prison, um, God sends a... Uh, well, let me ask you this. What do you think that, uh, that Joseph's response would be? So far, Joseph has responded rightly to every single thing that was thrown at him. He continued to trust the Lord, and the Lord continued to be faithful to him. And so when he, while he is in prison... God sends uh, a dream to two inmates. One of the inmates, one of the other inmates, uh, used to be a cupbearer to the Pharaoh. And uh, he had a dream, and he asked Joseph to interpret that dream. And Joseph said uh, to him, he said, you're going to get your job back, you're going to be the cupbearer again, but remember, and you're going to get out of jail. And, but remember old Joseph when that happens. So exactly that is what happened. He got out of jail and, uh, and, but do you think he remembered old Joseph? No, he did not remember old Joseph. Uh, others, maybe you, maybe, you know, maybe me, would have blamed God, maybe spent the rest of our lives wallowing around in self-pity. Um, you know, it's amazing how many people, they react so differently when these things happen. They may run away from God. They may move towards God. And we at my church, our sole reason for being is to help people find their way back to God. So take even if it's just little baby steps, maybe it's just one little tiny step towards God. And here's Joseph's response was, I'll keep serving and I'll keep obeying uh, him faithfully because he is who he says he is and he can do everything that he says he can do. So finally, two more years in prison, God sends Pharaoh a dream. And this is an odd dream. This is a very odd dream. The Lord sends Pharaoh a dream and he says... Seven skinny cows are eating seven healthy cows, and seven rotten ears of corn are eating seven healthy ears of corn. So Pharaoh's telling this dream to the cupbearer, and the cupbearer says, you know, I was in, locked up with this dude in Attica who's, uh, whose name was Joseph, and he interpreted a dream for me, and it came true. And so Pharaoh tells him, go get, go get the guy and let him interpret the dream, which he did. He interpreted it for the Pharaoh, and Pharaoh makes... Joseph, the prime minister now of Egypt. Um, Joseph's, and God is still faithful all the while. And so Joseph's response to this earhole moment is under whatever circumstance, it makes no difference. He's going to be faithful to his superiors. He's going to be faithful to God, and his work prospered because the Lord was with him. And it may seem like God's purposes may get frustrated. Maybe through our lens it looks that way, but the reality is they're never going to fail. In the muck and in the mire um, and in the mess of it all, it may seem too slow. And in fact, the reality is it may be slow. But the truth is he will never fail. Never. You think you want it to be gone right now. Well, maybe it's not going to be gone right now. Maybe it's going to be gone in a week or a month. or si- I have no idea. But I can tell you that he will never fail, and he will never not be faithful to you. Your, faithful le- your faithlessness or my faithlessness 
does not affect his faithfulness. My unlovability does not affect him loving me. Uh, we, we need to understand that. All right, so what happened to his brothers, uh, Joseph's brothers? You know, what, how would, what happened over time? So years went by, and Joseph had an incredible career in Egypt. He ran the country impeccably, and he weathered storms, and he managed food shortages, and that was that dream, that sev- those seven skinny cows and the, eating the seven healthy cows. All, that was a dream that said there was going to be seven years of famine. And so his brothers traveled to Egypt during that famine, uh, it had been a lot of years, and they, had not, they didn't recognize him anymore. And in Genesis 45, verse 4, starts in verse 4, Come closer to me, Joseph said to his brothers. So they came closer. And I want, you to listen to the, I want you to listen to what's behind the words that Joseph tells them. I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But don't feel bad. Don't blame yourselves for selling me. God was behind it. God sent me here ahead of you to save lives. All things. Think to Romans that Paul wrote 2,000 years later. Um, God was behind it. God sent me here ahead of you to save lives. There's been a famine in the land for two years, and it's going to continue for five more years, neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me on ahead to pave the way and make sure there was a remnant in the land to save your lives in an amazing act of deliverance. So you see, it wasn't you who sent me here, but God. He sent me in place as a father to Pharaoh, put me in charge of his personal affairs, and made me ruler of all Egypt. Joseph responded right to his brothers that had dealt him the hard knocks. So Joseph said to them, Let my father know, Jacob, let my father know that I'm alive, that I'm in Egypt, and you can live in the best of the land. He told all of his brothers this. You can live in the best of the land, and that is what they did. At one moment, Joseph is a prophet, and the next, he's a victim of of his own prophecy. At one moment, he's a prisoner, and the next, he's in command of the economic and political affairs of all of Egypt. One thing was constant through all of that junk. One moment, he's in the back of a pickup truck getting sold off into slavery. But the one thing that remained constant through all of that is the Lord was with him, and Joseph responded rightly to every single earhole moment that came along in his life. God is faithful. Why is God faithful? God is faithful because it is who he is. It is it is his nature. He can do anything, but he cannot cease to be who he is. Under, understand that. He is faithful because it is, it is who he is to be faithful. He loves you and me regardless of our unlovableness because it is who he is. So how do we respond when we're looking through these ear holes? You know, some of us may become bitter. We may become vindictive. We may become nasty. We may become hateful. We may, get, we may fall down and have a temper tantrum and scream out to God, you know, yell and blame and why. And some of us may want to retaliate. Others may seek what they think, what they think may be comfort in a bottle or what they think may be comfort uh, in, in drugs, what they think may be comfort in suicide. Um, however, there is a, usually a big delta between what is and what ought to be. And we ought to go to school on Joseph. We ought to go to school on the way that Joseph reacted to these things. He is probably the best picture of Christ in the Old Testament. Because though Jesus was despised, ear-holed, beaten, tortured, hung up on a cross, he loved then and he loves now. He loves then and forgives then, and he loves now and he forgives now. And in a, in a, in a dark cellar in Cologne, Germany... Um, where thousands of Jews one hit once hid from Nazi torment, 
they discovered this inscription, this, uh, this writing on a wall. And, it, and these words, they spoke against... And the guy that wrote this probably was murdered, probably his family was murdered, um, probably lost everything that he ever had. But what he wrote on this wall, he didn't write, you know, why me, why did you forsake me, why did you abandon me, you don't love me anymore. He didn't write all that. What he wrote on the walls is who his God is. This is what he wrote. He wrote, I believe in the sun even when it's not shining. I believe in love even when I don't feel it. And I believe in God even when he seems silent. God is not silent. He may seem silent through the, through the lens that we are looking at it through, but, but he is not. This guy didn't look at those walls in despair. He looked at those walls and he said, this is... This is who my God is. And I think that one of the things he's, he's saying to us is, who are you concentration camp? Before my God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, you are nothing. You know, who are you uh, fifth of Jack Daniels? You're nothing. Absolutely nothing compared to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. You know, who are you heroin? I don't p- fill the blank in. Whatever it is, it makes no difference. We have got a right-size God. As we sit here today, we have got to right-size Him. He is, that pit can't get any deeper than God can get. Whatever the problem is, whatever is going on, whatever has happened, He is bigger than that. And that is what this guy, that is what this guy that wrote that on that wall is saying. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you came from. It you've never even believed on the name of Jesus Christ. Maybe you don't even believe God here today because of something that happened in life or something that happened to someone you love or something that happened to somebody that you know. He is much bigger than all of that. We have got to right-size him. His worthiness, his belief in you, his faithfulness to you, his grace towards you, his mercy to you, his chesed, which is steadfast love, all of that, uh, that covenantal love that says, I love you because I said I was going to love you and I'm a promise keeper. I'm not a liar, I'm a promise keeper. And so when he says that to us, that tells me that he is way bigger than any of this other junk. And so I'm going to ask you, as we sit here today, if you have never right-sized God, and today you did, if you have said, I believe he is who he is, and I believe every single thing that he says, and I believe that he can do everything that he says he can do, and I do believe, this is not a complicated gospel, second time I said that. I do believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross, took the hit for all my junk, straightened that helmet out so that I wasn't looking through the ear hole anymore, and then he was resurrected three days later to prove that I too can live forever. If you have come to believe that today, the heavens are going bananas, screaming and yelling, and the angels are going to come in and carry you off on their shoulder just like they did in South Bend, Indiana for Rudy. That, that's what happens when one soul is saved. The world, the bleachers, the stadiums go berserk, screaming and yelling. And so, y'all pray with me. Father, I lift our church body up to you this morning. Lord, we are a bunch of broken imperfect people, and we're all looking through an ear hole at one moment or the other, but Lord, we love you because you are who you say you are. You are faithful when we are faithless. You're full of grace when we absolutely do not deserve it. And Father, you love us when we're unlovable. And Lord, you do it all because you're bigger than every bit of junk we could possibly have. 
Lord, you are a promise keeper. Lord, you are a helmet straightener outer. And we thank you and we praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.